Hi, and welcome to the JLL Living Podcast. My name is Adam Chalice. My great privilege to lead the UK research and strategy team at JLL. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by our capital markets leads in the living space in the UK, Simon Scott, Verity Knight, and Hugh Forrest. Of course, there's so much that is happening in the living investment space at the moment. And what we wanted to talk about today are some of those specific challenges, which you can clearly frame as opportunities for investors as we emerge into the new property cycle. And recognize that uh, across those challenges, while there are many commonalities throughout the living subsectors, that there are also some pretty distinct differences. And Certainly want to be able to tease out some of those for, for the audience, for, for, for listeners. So I wonder if I could maybe just start, Simon, with uh, a little bit of a, you know, some framing around the, the main problematics that you see with respect to living investment, notably the, the bias towards supply challenges that, uh, that we see in the market at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I, I guess the key thing uh, to sort of draw, draw in, first of all, is this sort of pent-up demand from the investor community in a market where there is a sort of shortage of residential property to invest into that's up and running and income producing, which Hugh has that has the benefit of being able to address more specifically. It's all about development in the main. And therefore, I think the challenges that face developers in the current financial markets that we find ourselves are further affected by the sort of political environment in which those developments are undertaken. So, I mean, Planning generally is the thing that you hear a lot of um, when talking to developers about the process you need to go through in order to get an appropriate consent for a build-to-rent opportunity. But you talk to a house builder in the context of single-family housing rentals and the same challenges apply there. So, I mean, certainly I think there's a broader government recognition that improvements are required to our planning system in order to help develop the speed in which these consents come through. And I think the other thing, quite rightly, obviously, in terms of the sort of development process, is the sort of consequences that have flowed from the, the disaster at, at Grenfell and obviously the improvements that are being required to uh, the sort of higher risk buildings, as I, I understand it, it's referred to the incorporation of dual staircases I think you, you look at some of the detail talking to our sort of project management and development teams about the lags and consents that are required before occupation. And all of these issues are just in a higher interest rate environment, creating really, really big challenges from a viability perspective, which then causes challenges from the investor community that want to get in and deploy capital into this space. And then the nervousness around that counterparty risk. So. The, the sort of unintended consequences of doing the right thing in certain areas or not pulling levers in, in others to make it easier fundamentally goes to create further barriers to entry and ultimately trying to achieve the benefits that government want to see in terms of increasing housing numbers. So really complex area, Adam. Thank, thanks, Alan. There's a, there's a lot there. And I guess in a sense, I'm, I'm pleased we called out planning early. It wouldn't be a, a conversation about development and, and viability if we weren't giving planning a bit of a, a rough ride, because it's always such a consistent theme that comes back, the, the challenges of being able to deliver almost regardless of the real estate sector, but but planning being a real a real framing issue. Verity, I wonder if I could come to you next, because I'm 
I'm thinking about your sector, the later living space, as having perhaps some of the most acute challenges with respect to supply. And of course, perhaps some more complexity around finding the right solution. I wonder if you could just comment a little bit further on your space. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't really be a living podcast, particularly touching on uh, later living if we went to give some demographic stat on the need for greater supply of older people housing and housing that was fit for purpose for our aging population. So I'll give you a little taster. Over the next 15 years, the size of the UK population aged 85 and over is projected to increase from 1.6 to 2.6 million, which is a 62.5% increase. So that that demand for older people with housing is not going anywhere. And currently, we just don't have the stock, the supply in the UK. I mean, we're massively behind more mature markets like the US, New Zealand, Australia in terms of our, our penetration rates of the, the kind of portion of our older population that are living in fit for purpose, modern, what we're calling IRFCs these days, integrated retirement communities. So our penetration rate is about 0.6 versus those more mature markets, are sort of 10 times higher than that, around 6% of those populations. So yeah, again, as, as similarities in terms of the BTR sector that Simon's already mentioned, but it's just that that access to the sites and the viability challenges around that. But also, I suppose, another big part of our market is the care home market. And again, we, we have a woeful supply pipeline, really, in that over the last 10 years or so, we've only had a net supply increase of 1.25% against a backdrop of our older sort of over 65 population growing about 20%. As you think about the, the supply dynamics, is there, a, is there a point here around Brits just having to get comfortable with urban, later living, higher density type, modern purpose-built environments that the traditional bungalow perhaps, you know, is harder to deliver. It's perhaps would preconceive as being, and I, I realize this is almost an out-of-date question for specialists in the space. There's an inevitability about it, but I wonder if you could comment on the supply side with respect to the way assets are going to have to evolve or, or maybe the way demand is going to have to get comfortable with the inevitability of evolving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a bit of a cultural shift. I mean, I think there's immaturity in the sector, both from the investment market, but also from the consumer perspective. So yeah, I think we are continuing to see that evolve. And there's a number of groups that are sort of heavily petitioning to get greater clarity, really, and understanding of the market. And I think there's kind of numerous definitions and, and kind of elements within the subsector don't really help that. So we, there has been a task force set up with the Older People's Housing Task Force that was set up last year by government. The aim of that is to address those challenges and kind of hoping to seek further clarity around sector-specific legislation on fees and greater clarity in the planning system as well. I'd love to come back to the, the way that developers and investors are thinking about through the operating platform, inducing that change in behavior, change in demand by creating you know higher quality spaces. But I'm just going to pause there for a moment, like being in because I'd love to just here, Hugh's perspective from a student accommodation from a PBSA perspective. We've been talking about supply challenges and of course, you know, all the old rhetoric, Hugh, around residential delivery being a small subset of demand. The student space, relatively speaking, has been a bit more resilient, but in absolute terms has many of the same challenges, of course, of uh, student populations, particularly for purpose-built accommodation, overweight against, against quality supply. How do you see the supply story evolving in the UK student space? With difficulty, I think is ultimately going to be a common theme for most of these uh, asset classes. I mean, you know, the student sector's fortunes in many ways that uh, having been one of the pioneering parts of the living sector, we have built stock. You know, we have quite a few hundred thousands of, of units, but, you know, we are still in, in, in a lot of cities and a lot of centres 
undersupplied against current demand. And the, the big challenge is how you meet the future demand. And I think, you know, picking up on Simon's uh, phrase, which I think will be a common thread, you know, generally is the unintended consequences, making development much more challenging, be that gateway requirements and how that impacts on lenders, etc. But I think the demand profile is looking very robust and, and very attractive. But I, I do fear how, you know, if I'm a university, I deliver, you know, mid-market priced accommodation to my students because you need rents of north of 200 pounds a week to make most schemes viable. And that I don't believe would be perceived by most universities, certainly in the regions, as a, a, a more affordable mid-market level. So, you know, you're, you're almost building for the preserve of the, the wealthier. Yeah, yeah. Got, got that. And I, I, clearly there are echoes of that that statement as you think about the broader living spectrum full stop. Simon, if I can come back to you, I'm just thinking about, you made reference earlier to the macro environment. And uh, to an extent, I didn't want to go deep on that space other than to recognize, of course, as rates have stabilized and by both commentators' expectations, we'll, we'll see some reductions over the course of this year. Plenty of debate about when that will take place. But ultimately, as a precursor to stabilizing debt markets and starting to help investors find the, the bite point where viability really truly means there's a market momentum coming back. There's a whole lot there that I'd love to unpack around the investor perspective on how the year is likely to progress. But I'd also like to pick up the element of really just focusing on managing assets well and thinking about the cost base, the operating platform. So I wonder if you could weave those two, two threads together a little bit, um, because I think Collectively, while investors are considering their long-term opportunities in the space, their near-term challenges, of course, is protecting ROI, protecting cash flow. And those two those two points really come together quite closely in a lot of the decision-making that's happening right now. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say, Adam, that the challenges around operational management and performance are not as big as they were perceived to be. Again, you and I, we go back sort of 20, 30 years in the, in the student accommodation space. It was one of the key barriers to entry. I think what the what the investment community has seen is a progressive development of operational solutions, and therefore that's given them greater confidence to move into the built-to-rent space because of the lessons that they've learned and the risks that they've perceived, particularly around the operational performance and execution, weren't as great as they were. And you think about investors historically in the more traditional asset class has been quite used to a 25 year for repairing and insuring lease. This is not what this sector is all about. So I think at an operational level, it's probably less of a problem. I think probably the key issue, and I, I guess Verity is probably the right person to talk to in here is particularly with that, that additional requirement for service coming in the healthcare space is the challenges about retracting, retaining the affordability piece around the people on the ground actually executing the work. Yeah, I mean, I mean, staffing is always the biggest challenge in our sector, particularly for care operators. And again, that kind of flows into the viability because for care, typically, you're looking at sort of 55 to 60 percent, sometimes higher as a percentage of revenue. So it, it's massive in terms of how it affects your your profit. And yeah, as I say, the kind of agency usage and just as you say, attracting and retaining staff in social care is has forever been a challenge and I think will continue to be so. I think the the sort of introduction of the real living wage has really helped many operators adopting that. But yeah, as I say, especially since since Brexit, since COVID, attracting and retaining their staff 
it's been. I had a feeling the B word would come out. It's taken how many minutes? <laughs> Seems almost inevitable in your space. Thinking a little bit more meaningfully around the, the mitigators and the solutions there. I mean, clearly, as you said, the living wage helps improving care as a vocation, as a career. The perception of it is important. I wonder as well about the role of technology. I mean, clearly so much can't be replaced by by tech, but there must be ways that technology is beginning to support the operating platform at asset level to create some efficiency with less dependency on labor. Are you seeing some innovations, Verity, that are, are worth calling out? Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you say, the the potential for tech to, to aid and to help service our sector is massive, even for some fairly low-tech solutions that just enable people to live independently for longer you know, even sort of speech activated controls or, you know, basic sort of tin opener. I think there was a study done recently by Serling University and it, even, even as I say, just sort of more friendly kitchen utensils and things, just, just enable people to live independently, iPads that enable people to speak to their friends and family easily, you know, just simple, simple tech that people use every day. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose the more, the more specialist tech around digital care records, medical systems, full sensors, health monitoring, all of that. Yeah, I think it's definitely a growing, growing sector. And I think that, I think we've got to be careful around tech and healthcare because there, there are a lot of sort of gimmicky things. There's robots taking dinners to residents and care homes and all of that's great, but none of it can beat, you know, real human touch and, and having a conversation at the end of the day with a resident. So yeah, I think I think the potential is massive. Yeah. As I say, I would caveat that, that the, the, the human element of care is going to remain important as well. Yeah, I really like that message. That's you know, it's many, many little things and quite practical things that improve the quality of individuals' lives, of residents' lives, without necessarily looking to lean towards giving. So of course, Technology is a big investment and therefore from an operating platform perspective is at risk. And Hugh, when I think about the student space, particularly in PBSA world, where you get uh, some quite important investment in supporting the, the student experience, whether that's software that allows students to connect better with fellow residents in a, in a, in a given building, or whether it's around hardware solutions that improve the amenity space. Where do you see the the big shifts or the big opportunities in the operating platform, technology really has a big role to, to play in, in reshaping or recasting the operating platform for students. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to avoid the, the human element um, largely. And there's going to be many, many touch points, but, you know, to, to what extent you can sort of play around the margins. So, you know, we've, we've clients that are working with people like Utopi who effectively monitor energy consumption. And I think that gives real-time information that can help you you know, really influence the use of both carbon, but also you know, that energy and therefore trying to sort of dial down, that has a direct revenue benefit. Uh, and I think that will, will start, you know, those types of, you know, opportunities will start to become more, more prevalent. I think that another group, Guided, for example, who, you know, where I think you can sort of do digitization of welcome packs so that you, you've got from a user perspective, in everything, everything to hand and, and, and how you weave that into the social experience and create, help create more of a community. So more than just sort of like social, social media type, I think that, you know, the, the sector is going to start, it's got it to a degree, but I think it will start to evolve much more and, you know, probably a little bit of a different user experience for my demographic versus perhaps Verities, you know, we probably got the most, uh, you know, uh, user-able community groups for using social interaction. For me, it's a really interesting 
point to riff off there. When you start to think about your, you know, the, the, the student cohort as being more aware of sustainability issues, more aware of health and well-being, perhaps in, the, in a different sense than later living, certainly. Do you see investors looking at student with a, a strong ESG narrative? Do, they, do you see it as a, as a backdrop, sort of a silver lining to some of the activities? Or is it ultimately becoming quite a key driver for, for student investment going forward? It's a really interesting one. And, and we, we sort of felt uh, and forecast for this year that you know, just the broader ESG direction was going to be much more of an agenda item for our investors. I'm not saying it isn't. But I would say that it's been probably a little less focused on historically and perhaps partly down to legacy in, in terms of you know, sorting out sort of legacy issues. But I, I think that you know, the, the exam question, which is really difficult to answer is how do I, yes, I've got my green credentials and we've, we've got the agenda, which is clearly very, very important, but making that justification for going the extra mile in terms of development cost, am I going to get that in yield maybe over time? Can we tangibly say we get it today? Maybe not. Do students demand and pay the extra rent that is associated with a building that's got those strong credentials? Difficult. So I think that's given a, a real challenge to investors and developers about how they, how they actually and ultimately apply it. But it's definitely rising up the list of priorities and you know what one that we're, we're going to be focusing a lot of time on. Yeah, th thanks you. That's really, really helpful. I mean, Simon, when you look more broadly across the living spectrum, and clearly, as you mentioned earlier, the, the challenges are much more near term on, on viability and just simply getting sort of built to rent to stack up, but even a single family to, to some extent. Does sustainability just have a little bit of a quiet phase at the moment or, or do you see it being in a broader sense of the social element of ESG? Do you see it really coming back in a different way or renewed way through the early phases of the next property cycle? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd go a bit stronger on it than, than I think he's articulating. I'd say it's front and center. I think you can't get away from the challenges around viability, but I think that's actually just making it harder. So the conversations that I've been having with Capital, let's take the sort of the key area in build to rent at the moment, single family housing. There are a number of funds out there that literally say, well, it's gas fired heating system. Sorry, I'm out. So that I certainly wouldn't have thought about a few years ago. So I think that's, that's probably a really good illustration. I think the sort of whole world of EPCs and the, the sort of government backtrack in terms of making sure that assets were seen above in 25 stroke 28, getting knocked back. I think it's a bit like the sort of fire safety regs that actually institution investors are very, very conscious of what they're providing to their consumers. And therefore, I think they will drive that improvement. Again, sort of government policy trying to further institutionalize the whole living rental space, I, th I think you are going to see that institutional driver coming forward. I think addressing your point around the, the social element of ESG, that I would say a few years back would have been, that's the big tick in the box. I'm helping provide housing stock by deploying capital into, into residential assets. I think it's a lot more than that. And I think the governance piece around the way that you interact with your client base for a from a residential investment perspective is is absolutely key and aligns centrally to what government is trying to do in terms of providing improved housing conditions for those of us that rent. Yeah. So I 
yeah, I'd say it's front and center of conversation now. Do you, would you agree with that that sentiment? I would actually. Yeah, I think we're seeing we're seeing investors, talk, particularly on on forward fundings and new stock. I think the E element of of ESG is front and center in terms of EPC and in BREM ratings. I think the the S element is really interesting. I think the the fact that we're still struggling to to quantify the social value of investments, I think, is a challenge that I really hope we can kind of push forward on this year. But yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing increased interest from social impact funds, or at least funds with with the social impact agenda. And again, with governance, I mean, healthcare and later living, it fundamentally depends on strong governance and, and regulations. So it's something I feel quite strongly about with our sector, but we just need to work out how we can kind of shout about it a bit louder, particularly the S and the G. And Adam, I think just to come in I, on the student side, I 100% agree with... Backtracking with, with... to you. Yeah. <laughs> 100% agree with both Verity and, and Simon's comments. I just think that, you know, it's going to lift much more relevant. It's, it's very difficult to see tangible examples right now, but I think, you know, we are going to see a whole lot more focus. I think it's going to be differentiation yeah. of, of investment decisions that perhaps is less so right now. But I, there's no doubt our clients are, you know, are very live to this. Speaking of shout outs, I wanted to just call it the recent work from research colleagues looking at the cost of retrofit and looking at retrofit across the wider residential spectrum. Because I think while we're talking more narrowly about the investment space and the B2B space within living, of course, across the broader the broader residential landscape, supply challenges are at least as much about the 99% of stock that exists and needs to be, be dealt with from an environmental standpoint as it is about getting new stock, new stock built to a higher standard and to, to stronger sustainability credentials. But Verity, I wonder if I could just come back to you on that. We've talked a lot about many of the issues that are shaping decision-making today, this year, the challenges at a macro level, the way that's flowing through the viability. We've talked a little bit about regs and, and perhaps there's a bit more on how PD rights starts to create some opportunities. Maybe not so much in your space, but maybe so. But ultimately, we've also got a change of government and change of government may well mean new priorities, uh, new focus on what we want to achieve, but just can't get away from the reality that your space is the least well-serviced from a supply perspective we are all getting older, as you pointed out uh, earlier, and proportionally, uh, there will be more of us in the age bracket to require this sort of home. So when you look to the future, do you see the space literally developing or do you see ongoing challenges that are just too difficult to unpack? Yeah, I mean, the as you say, the demographic supply stats talk for themselves in our, in our space. In terms of the investment thesis, I, I can't see any other sector that has more of a sort of strong underpin for the need of, for greater investment in this area of housing. My hope, I suppose, in terms of trying to break down those barriers of entry, I think Older People's Housing Task Force, I think, and I hope, will have a really strong role to play here. And I, I hope that any change in government will not take their eye off the ball on this because we really need, as I said earlier, that sort of sector-specific legislation around integrated retirement communities just to give greater clarity and understanding around the fee and, and regulation. And again, kind of tenure options as well. And again, the, the planning system, we need planning reform in, in the space just to, from from everybody's perspective, allow developers, operators to hopefully apply for grants that be relevant. And, and again, just really stimulate that development activity that's needed in the space. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Hugh, perhaps a little bit more relevant when you think about Peter Wright's, um, think about some of the opportunities in urban locations in particular where, I mean, I'll throw in, throw in this as well, of course, with office obsolescence beginning to accelerate, there will be 
in combination with change of use, not a sort of floor under some of those stranded assets from an alternate use value. Do you see student picking up some renewed opportunity for urban stock? Um, or do you see it, the, the growth of supply for PBSA happening a little bit differently? I think if we jump back 20, 25 years is where it probably started. You know, in Bristol, a lot of the sort of old redundant office buildings were, were converted into student use. We're spending quite a lot of time, particularly in London, looking at fringe office locations and buildings for, for students. Often the floor plate is quite compromised and that does give a, a challenge in terms of how you make the space work appropriately. And I suspect that'll be a, a common thread for most living, you know, when, when you sort of look at window for, you know, uh, formations, etc. So I think, you know, investors are also a little bit more hesitant about buying, if you like, old office buildings. There is a tried path there. I mean, it's not a new route. But I think there there is a sort of natural attraction to more purpose-built, bespoke buildings. But I don't think it's an easy unlock, ultimately. I think there'll be a lot of buildings which we're reviewing, which location works, but the, the rest of it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I guess, Simon, when we think about the challenges and viability for the traditional perspective on higher density, purpose-built, built-to-rent, the PD right story does perhaps create a greater opportunity over the over the medium term, if not the short term. Do you see, do you see viability for built to rent really beginning to to find its bike point, as I referred to earlier, and 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 a new wave of development activity gaining momentum through this year, or are we still some way off? Yeah, I mean, there, there are clearly places where it's much easier to execute than others, and hopefully not sort of portraying a sort of doomsday scenario. It's just really difficult. I think there's a lot of talk around PD being a silver bullet. I completely agree with Hugh. Certainly the schemes that we've looked at more often than not, they're just not right. And I think this sort of perception that they're suddenly going to be the holy grail in terms of housing delivery, a sort of perception that you've got a building, therefore it's going to be so much cheaper to provide. Certainly from a construction perspective, my experience is actually can almost be the other way around. Really don't know what you're letting yourself in for um, until you get cracking and and get under the skin of a building. So I, I, th I think there can be a misconception there around the ease of delivery in terms of refurbishment of opportunities. But undoubtedly, there will be areas where it really does work. I mean, I think logically, there's a huge amount of talk around the co-living space and those sort of urban environments, I think particularly play into that sort of consumer market, as you've alluded to, in, in terms of a sort of post-student demographic that feels like that's where there may well be a bit of traction. And I've seen some great co-living schemes from a, a sort of office refit perspective that really work. So I, I think there will certainly be opportunities that come through and, and benefit both those that have hold secondary offices, as you said, that just are no longer fit for purpose and enable us to provide a residential housing solution in that form. So yeah, certainly some optimism there. Yeah, great. It would be remiss of me not to call out the huge growth in single family, although I would rather suggest we're going to run out of time to do a big deep dive into that, that subsegment in the way that it's, it's flourished, particularly in an environment where investor appetite continues to grow, but remains unsatisfied by the available bill to rent opportunities. You can see a, a natural push in the single family space and, and perhaps 
some of that investment prioritization coming back towards built to rent as viability improves. There's also been right across the living spectrum, quite a lot of consolidation full stop as we've seen entity level activity M&A. I wonder, Simon, whether you want to comment on how that space is likely to evolve over the medium term, because it really covers the full living spectrum, doesn't it? I mean, again, we're sort of touching on the politics of house building. I guess you're referring specifically to the Barrett Redrow conversation that's obviously ongoing at the moment and certain house builders history, for example, we've done a couple of well-reported on some substantial deals that are moving away from their sort of, I suppose, historic target of owner-occupiers. I mean, the key thing is that's starting to then, on the one hand, reduce the depth of supply from a, how many conversations can you have? And, and at the end of the day, the house building market has very, very much been focused on, on that owner-occupied sector. And, and certainly having done a few cycles throughout my residential investment career, that supply side tends to, tends to sort of wane down. So I think that is an interesting area that I think we will see develop over the next 6, 12, 18 months as to whether that continuation of supply from the national house builders continues to satisfy the undoubted demand that's coming from institutional capital and looking into build to rent a single family housing investments. Yep. So yeah, I think that's, it would be an interesting one to watch. Really helpful. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to come up on the buffers of time here, but uh, I did want to ask each of you to just think about a call out of characteristic in each of your living subsectors that you're watching, either because it represents a real opportunity for your client base to to really lean in, whether it becomes a potential risk on the horizon line. Um, I'm going to put you each on the, on the spot with a sort of a relatively short response. I might as well start with Hugh, because never short of a good answer. In the student space, Hugh, is there a characteristic that you're you know, you're really keeping an eye on that maybe you think investors need to pay a little extra attention to? Anything like that? I think when we sort of look at the viability thread that we've talked about extensively, it strikes me that existing investments to a certain degree have a, a locked-in security that perhaps is being considered greater. I think, you know, you've got chips on the table for want of a better description there. And therefore you've got the opportunity to grow accommodation. So, you know, how you look at older first, second generation stock and and perhaps reimagining that more than new developments, there is a different risk profile attached to it. Developing schemes today, the risk reward is you know, arguably not in alignment. So how can I sort of take an existing scheme and, and make that work better and, and unlock upside? Yeah, really good. And, and of course, there's an opportunity there to riff in some of that uh, sustainability point as well, as you can improve the quality of accommodation, the energy efficiency, and, and so on along the way. Verity. I'm going to ask you the same question. Have you got, you've had an extra minute or so to think about it. Have you got a call out? Yeah, I think, I think, I suppose, uh, piggybacking slightly on, on Hugh's comments there, I think an area that's really interesting in our market is that sort of mid-market. And we often talk about a sort of two-tier market, north-south divide. I think a lot of the development historically to date has been in more affluent areas of IRCs and, and also care homes. So I think, putting bluntly, there, there are older people, aging people everywhere, all over the UK. So I think if we can sort out the funding solutions of, of those lower affluence areas, I think that that's an area of the market, whether it be new development, if we can get the viability to stack, or as I say, existing stock and, and improving the existing stock that's in those areas, I think, yeah. Great. Something to watch out for. Thanks, Verity. That's, that's fantastic. Really helpful. I feel reassured about my own future in that respect eventually. <laughs> 
Simon, to bring us to a close on the conversation, which I've really enjoyed, have you got any sort of specific call-outs that the story that you'd invest your own money in if you had the, the spare several hundred million available or, or just something that you think that clients really need to be thinking about that maybe they don't have top of mind sufficiently at the moment? Yeah, I just, I mean, there's such a consistency around all the pressures that we find ourselves in leading the various sort of subsets of living. So I guess my call out would probably be the sort of integration. So we've got lots of sector specialists. You've got lots of institutional capital that may have dedicated funds within the subsets that we've been talking about. But that sort of fuller integration of the demographic groups that we have been principally focusing on, it does happen, but it doesn't happen as often as you might think it should. So I think if, you, if you're looking to me to sort of call out a sort of future trend, maybe that would be the one that I'd like to see more of than is the case today. Because I think there's lots of touch points that you can see across our subsets where it does happen, where you do see students living cheek by jowl with older residents. And you do see a more older population in a multifamily block alongside students and postgrads. But we're not seeing necessarily that being, I suppose, embraced as much as, as perhaps it should do from the investor community. So maybe that'd be my call out. Perhaps that's simply a point around maturity of the space uh, as, it, as it evolves and more nuanced thematics can grow with, with the, investor, the investor maturity in the space. So much there. I feel like we're going to leave loads off the table. So perhaps there's an opportunity to come back to some of the additional conversations at, at a different point. But I think it leaves me to really thank each of you, Hugh, Verity, Simon, truly interesting conversation. I have the luxury of being in a role where I get to chat with experts within the business and outside all of the time. And I find myself often on the learning end as much as on the listening and the, and the conveying end. So, so thanks very much. It was a really fascinating conversation. I hope the listeners have all really very much enjoyed what you've been able to share. So thanks very much. 